Well, today, brothers and sisters, as you can clearly tell, we are back in the book of Exodus. In particular, we are considering again Moses seeing God's glory and its effects upon him, namely his shining face, as we just read. We began to examine this passage three weeks ago now by looking at it particularly through the lens of 2 Corinthians 3. If you remember, we saw in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul has some fascinating things to say about the shining face of Moses. In many ways, he gives us a spirit-inspired apostolic commentary on Exodus 34, 29 through 35. And it was this commentary that we just barely began to scratch the surface of three weeks ago. Now, as I said then, in order to understand what Paul has to say there about the shining face of Moses, you really have to understand first his larger overall purpose in the letter of 2 Corinthians as a whole. In other words, Paul is not there writing a commentary for the sake of commentary. Rather, he appeals to Exodus 34 as part of his larger burden that he is trying to, to, to communicate to the Corinthians. And as I said, a lot of what Paul has to say there is unintelligible unless you first establish that background and that larger picture. Well, it was precisely that larger picture which we set out three weeks ago uh, to establish, and Lord willing, today we will move into more of the particulars. By way of reminder, we saw that simply put, the big picture of 2 Corinthians is over and over again Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry, his apostleship from Christ, and really an attempt to be fully reconciled with the Corinthian church from whom he had become estranged. We saw that certain Jewish false teachers had come to Corinth. They had undermined Paul's apostleship, saying that he was not qualified. There's a lot of talk of letters of recommendation. Um, perhaps these men came from Jerusalem somehow. Where were Paul's letters of recommendation? Oh, he didn't have any? Well, he's not qualified like we are. He must not be a real apostle. Even going as far as to accuse Paul of trying to take advantage of the Corinthians. Again, Paul says in chapter 12, verses 14 through 18, Here for the third time I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obliged to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, as you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Furthermore, this is getting more to our purposes today, we saw that not only did Paul have to clear himself of basically being a fraud to the Corinthians, but he also had to justify his boldness and confidence as an apostle of Jesus Christ. It seems that these false teachers were saying that Paul's boldness as an apostle was really nothing but just a lot of talk. 
Paul's a lot of hot air. Have you heard that guy? Man, all he does is talk. But he's more bark than bite, is what they were saying. In fact, it seems that they were accusing Paul in his boldness of trying to manipulate and frighten the Corinthians into submission so that he could take advantage of him, of them. He says in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 2, I, Paul, myself entreat you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I, went, when I am awake. I think he says that tongue in cheek. That's how they're describing him. I who am humble when face to face, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. That's not something you want to hear from the Apostle Paul. <laughs> he says later in the same chapter, verses 9 through 12, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. And so all throughout the epistle of 2 Corinthians, Paul has to defend his apostolic boldness and confidence in Christ. Now, as far as how this all relates to Exodus 34, we saw that in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, when Paul defends his apostolic boldness, he does so by grounding his boldness in the nature of the new covenant itself. In other words, Paul is bold because he is a minister of the new covenant covenant. He says in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 3, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim as anything coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In other words, if you want to know what made Paul, Paul, if you want to understand what motivated that man to endure such agony and hardship, saying in 2 Corinthians 11, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, on me, of my anxiety for all the churches, Paul, what makes it worth it? Dude, get a better job. There's an easier way to make a living. No way. Why does he keep doing it? Look no further than the new covenant of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. Furthermore, when Paul grounds his boldness in the nature of the new covenant, he does something very interesting. Namely, he makes a contrast between the new covenant and the old. The old covenant we saw is the ministry of the letter, while the new covenant is the ministry of the Spirit. 
While the letter, the law, kills, meaning condemns sinners and sends them to hell, the Spirit gives new life to sinners. The Spirit writes on the heart that which was formerly only written in letters on tablets of stone. The Old Covenant is the ministry of condemnation, while the New Covenant is the ministry of righteousness, or more precisely, imputed righteousness, i.e., justification. The old covenant condemns sinners. The new covenant justifies them. And lastly, although Paul doesn't give an Old Testament corollary, he says that the new covenant is the ministry of reconciliation, the means by which sinners are reconciled to God, whereas the old covenant leaves sinners estranged from God. Well, as Paul makes this contrast, interestingly, He not only contrasts the two covenants, but he contrasts two covenant ministers, namely himself and the other apostles as ministers of the new covenant of Jesus Christ on the one hand, and Moses as the minister par excellence of the old covenant on the other. Basically, Paul argues that just as he is bold because he is a minister of the new covenant, Moses, by contrast, could not be bold with Israel, rather having to veil himself. I believe what Paul is saying by that is the lack of boldness is ultimately grounded also in the nature of the covenant of which Moses was a minister. Paul's bold because he's a a minister of the new covenant. Moses could not be bold with Israel, and we'll see what that means, because ultimately, look no further than the nature of the old covenant. Again, he says in chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites could not or might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. That's really where we stopped last time. That's as far as we got. What I want us to do today is with the help of God to dive deeper into Paul's arguments here. And what we really want to try to understand today is how the new covenant gives Paul his boldness. We've seen that that's what he says, but why is it that it gave Paul boldness and not Moses? What what is the cause of that? Why does the old covenant result in a lack of boldness on the part of Moses? And what does that even mean in the first place? Questions like these, we are now in a better place to answer, and by God's grace, we will get some answers. Now, let me say something to you, brothers and sisters. We are wading into the deep things of Paul. I confess, I have been incredibly humbled by this text. (laughs) Um, There have been times when I thought I understood, and then I was like, no, I think I misunderstood that. And I'm like, no, wait, I was right. Paul's just also doing this other thing here. Um... And we are wading into that today. Now, be encouraged. This is Holy Scripture. It's inspired by the Spirit. You have the Spirit inside of you to understand these things. And and I think even if we don't fully grasp what Paul is saying here, Lord willing, we will come a little bit closer. Um, But Paul's kind of a madman in some of the things uh, he does in this passage. Paul will just be like, oh, I'm going to do this and that. But he doesn't tell you. He doesn't explain all the things he's doing. Um, but he just does a lot of things. I, I was reminded in Acts where Festus, I think it's Festus, says to Paul, 
Paul, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. I was like, was he reading what would later, was it a manuscript of 2 Corinthians 3? Um, uh, So there are some things in here that are true. They're mysteries of the Spirit hidden in the Old Testament. But by God's grace, um, I think we will still get fruit out of this today. Well, let's go ahead and begin then. Open your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter 3, <clears throat> we'll begin in verse 12. Paul says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. The first thing I want to draw your attention to here in this passage overall are three words. They are related in this passage, but they are also related elsewhere throughout Scripture, and they also appear together. Um, you You don't find all three of them in the same verse, but they often appear in pairs, but you will often find them kind of in the same general context. These words are hope, confidence, and boldness. Hope, confidence, and boldness. We see these together in our present passage. For example, verse 12, we just read, Paul says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Back in verse 4, if you look at the same chapter, he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Hope, confidence, and boldness. We see these appear often in different combinations elsewhere in Scripture. For example, Ephesians 3.12, in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Boldness and access with confidence. Or Hebrews 3.6, and we are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Again, hope confidence, and boldness. These three often go together in Scripture. Now, it's easy to see why confidence and boldness would go together. Those things are synonymous. Um, If you know someone who is very confident, they're often probably very, very bold as well. That makes sense. Why, though, is hope part of this triad? Where does hope come into play here? I think we should understand the idea, the biblical idea of hope, with the other two words, confidence and boldness. Um, Today, often when we use the word hope, we don't necessarily mean it in that way. Um, Sometimes we use the the word hope not in the the sense of a confidence um, or you, you are very sure, certain that something can happen, but it's conjectural. Maybe it's even very, very probable, but it's not even certain, right? You might say, I I really hope. I really hope it rains a lot this next week. I wish it does, but I don't know for sure if it will. That's not the biblical idea of Christian hope that the apostles talk about. Biblical hope is not a conjecture. 
it's not even a really, really, really super-duper high probability. It is a certainty. That is biblical hope. It's not the hope that we have that perhaps it will rain this week sometime. It's the hope that we go to bed with that the sun will rise the next day. No one says, I hope the sun will come up tomorrow. It's like, well, duh, it's going to. Rather, we go to bed in the hope that it will. That is the biblical concept of hope. And so it makes sense that it goes along with confidence and boldness. Rather, we could say that this kind of hope produces confidence and boldness in those who have it. And that makes sense. If you have an infallible hope, if you have a certain concrete not super-duper probable, but absolute hope, you will be very bold and confident. The author of Hebrews describes it this way. He says, The promise of God is like a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's the biblical concept of hope. And when you have such a hope, it produces boldness. And so these three are often found together, hope, confidence, and boldness. Furthermore, note in verse 4, chapter 3, that this confidence and hope and boldness is not primarily a boldness towards other humans, though Paul in the passage has been defending his boldness towards Corinthians. Rather, in verse 4, first and foremost, it is a boldness and confidence towards God. Paul says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. It's a confidence towards God. Or in Ephesians 3.12, which we looked at, he says, in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Christ. Access to whom? Well, God the Father through faith in Christ. So Paul's boldness is primarily a boldness towards God. Nevertheless, this boldness and confidence towards God results in boldness and confidence towards others as well. And it's as simple as Romans 8, 31 through 34. How shall we, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If you have an infallible hope that God is on your side, then you charge into the enemies. You are, you are very bold because God is on your side. If you have confidence and boldness towards God, it affects how you interact with others. Paul explained that this really empowered his preaching. He told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.2, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Do you see how that works? Our boldness was in God, and therefore we were able to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now, here we should ask, okay, Paul, you're bold, you're confident towards God, you have a lot of hope. How is this connected, though, to the new covenant? What is it specifically about the new covenant that makes Paul bold in comparison to Moses? 
both Paul and Moses served the same God, and yet it was specifically the new covenant which gave Paul his boldness. So what's he talking about? I think here it has everything to do with what Paul has said about the nature of the new covenant. It is the ministry which gives life to sinners, not death. It is the ministry which justifies sinners through imputed righteousness, not the ministry which condemns them. And it is the ministry which reconciles sinners back to God through Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, when you have those things by faith, the Holy Spirit, new life in the Spirit, justification, your condemnation with God is gone. You are reconciled. He's now your Father. When you have all those things, suffice to say you have hope. Hope doesn't, man, it's such a weak word in English. It doesn't even communicate. You, you don't just have hope. You have all hope. You have the very concept of hope because you have God if you have all those things. Paul says in Romans 5, 1 through 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This, however, was, as Paul says, not the case with Moses. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face. Now, on a personal level, Moses was a believer. He was saved just as much as Paul was. He was saved by faith in the promise of the seed of the woman. And so when Paul says that he was not bold, I don't think he means he wasn't bold personally towards God in the same way that Paul was, or any Christian in the Old Testament or the New Testament is through Jesus Christ. I think it's a bit more nuanced than that. I think when Paul says that Moses was not bold, he means that he could not be bold towards Israel. Had he kept his face uncovered, they never would have come back near to him. And I think for Paul, it's not just that Moses' face is super shiny. <laughs> it's deeper than that. Rather, it's because of what Moses represents. What did Moses represent when he came down from Sinai? What's he carrying? The law, the Ten Commandments. In fact, as he comes down, he is carrying the new tablets of the law in his hands. He is carrying the tablets of the ministry that threatens and condemns sinners, not the ministry that justifies sinners. It is the ministry of the letter which kills, not the ministry of the Spirit which gives life. In fact, the veil that Paul speaks of, he interprets it as a picture of the hardness of Israel's heart. Huh. Moses had to veil himself because they were hard-hearted. He says in verses 14 through 15, But their hearts were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Testament, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. In other words, just as they could not look at Moses without him veiling himself, 
neither can they read Moses without a veil on their own heart. The old covenant didn't give a new heart. It didn't give faith. Furthermore, it didn't justify sinners and reconcile them back to God. Rather, it condemned them to death. And brothers and sisters, do you know what happens when a guilty, condemned sinner with a hard heart is confronted by the glory of God? Do you know what they do? They run away in fear. They act exactly as Adam and Eve did when God came in the coolness of the day. They fled from Him in fear and shame. You see, whereas the new covenant produces hope, the old covenant produces hopelessness for the sinner before God. And whereas hope produces confidence and boldness, when you have hopelessness as a condemned sinner before God, you do not have boldness and confidence. What do you have? Fear, terror before holy God. Paul says to the Ephesians that although they now have confidence and access with boldness through Christ, that's not how they used to be. Rather, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This produces fear, not confidence and boldness. It's exactly what we read of Israel when they see the shining face of Moses. Verse 30 of Exodus 34, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. The law does not justify sinners, nor does it take away their hardness of heart. It only terrifies them. Now, perhaps someone might say, or perhaps even someone here is thinking, hold on, Pastor, didn't you just say several weeks ago that when God reveals himself to Moses, and, and Israel on Mount Sinai, it's, it's meant to be a great hope to sinners. And I did say that. Didn't you say that he reveals himself as a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, to which I say, yes, that's exactly what I preached on. Well, how can you say then that the glory of God on Sinai produced fear in them? The answer is because Paul is not making a contrast between two different kinds of gods. The God of the Old Covenant is not a different, less merciful God from the God of the New Covenant. Rather, he's contrasting two covenants. And though God be merciful and gracious, yet in the Old Covenant a sacrifice for sins is not provided that can justify sinners nor is the heart of stone taken away. And so though he be all those things he reveals, yet sinners are still blind to him and fear him. It's the covenant that is the problem for sinners. I think we see this confirmed in another comparison that Paul makes in the following chapter. And this is where we start to go even deeper into the mind of Paul. Paul has made a comparison between himself and Moses as covenant ministers. In the following chapter, however, he makes another comparison, but this time between Moses and Christ. 
On the one hand, you have the glory of God shining in the face of Moses. We've seen that. On the other hand, you have the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 4, verse 6, For God has, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Two shining faces he presents to us, one of Moses and one of Christ. Again, I think the comparison is between what they represent. Moses represents the old covenant and the law, Christ, the new covenant, and the gospel. In the law, God is an all-consuming fire, but through Christ, he has become father and friend. As John says, for the law was given through Christ, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John Calvin uh, coined a term. Um, You see the concept in other writers, but the coining of the term goes to him. It's in his Institutes. But he speaks of a twofold knowledge of God. Has anyone here ever heard of that? Twofold knowledge of God? The cognitio, duplex cognitio dei, the twofold knowledge of God. As he explains, this twofold knowledge of God is really two different ways that people know God and relate to Him. I would say that these two ways, these two kinds of knowledge, are respectively the knowledge of God in the law on the one hand, and the knowledge of God through Christ in the gospel on the other. Calvin says, for example, in the fashioning of the universe and the general teaching of Scripture, the Lord shows Himself to be simply Creator. Then in the face of Christ, see the reference to our passage? In the face of Christ, He shows himself to be the Redeemer. Now, when Calvin says that in the general teaching of Scripture, God shows himself to be Creator but not Redeemer, he does not mean that Scripture does not generally show forth that Christ is Redeemer. What he means is those who only have a general knowledge of God through the teaching of Scripture but do not have faith. Those who do not have faith and behold the face of Christ by faith. They only know God as judge and creator, but not as redeemer. Or listen to another reformer. You've probably not, maybe not heard of this one. Maybe you have. His name's Pierre Verret, sometimes called Peter Verret. Um, not as well known in our day, but right up there with Calvin, and, and he and Calvin were very close friends. Listen to what he says. St. James says that the devils believe and tremble before the majesty of God. But they do not believe in the same way as the faithful children of God do. The devils believe there is a God and do fear Him, but not as the good child fears his father, but as an evildoer fears a judge. Furthermore, the devils do believe that there is one God, yet they do not believe God is their God. That is to say, that He is their Savior and Father, ready, benign, favorable, and merciful, and that He will show unto them His grace and mercy through His Son, Jesus Christ. And he that knoweth God not through the Son knoweth Him not to be His God, but doth hold Him as a cruel tyrant, 
which he doth more fear than love. For we cannot know him to be otherwise apart from Jesus Christ, because the evil conscience which feels itself guilty of his judgment causeth him to think so of God. Therefore, it is impossible that any should have the true knowledge of God, such as required to come unto this sovereign goodness, but he that contemplates God not in himself, nor to be considered barely or in his majesty, nor in any other way than in this human flesh which he hath put on by his Son, Jesus Christ. And for those who do not have eyes of faith given by the Spirit, brothers and sisters, they are blind to Christ. They only see God through Moses. I think that's what Paul is getting at. Listen to how Spurgeon, for example, speaks of his own spiritual blindness before his conversion. He says, I believe that I had been a very good, attentive listener. My own impression about myself was that nobody ever listened much better than I did. For years as a child, I tried to learn the way of salvation, and either I did not hear it set forth, which I think cannot quite have been the case, or else I was spiritually blind and deaf and could not see it and could not hear it. But the good news that I was, as a sinner, to look away from myself to Christ as much startled me and came as fresh to me as any news I had ever heard in my life. Had I never read my Bible? I had, and I read it earnestly. Had I never been taught by Christian people? I had, by mother and father and others. Had I not heard the gospel? Yes, I think I had, and yet somehow it was like a new revelation to me. I confess to have been tutored in piety, put into my cradle by prayerful hands, and lulled to sleep by songs concerning Jesus. But after having heard the gospel continually with line upon line, precept upon precept, hear much, hear there, yet when the word of the Lord came to me with power, it was as new as if I had lived among the unvisited tribes of Central Africa. There are those, brothers and sisters, who know of Christ. They read about Him. They know much of Christ. They have a great knowledge of God. They do not know God as their God because they don't see Him by faith in the face of Jesus Christ. Rather, He is their Creator. He is their Judge. But He's not their Father. That is the contrast between the two shining faces. To know God and see His glory through the face of the law, which leaves you hopeless, or to know God through the face of Jesus Christ, which gives you all hope. That's what Paul is saying. This helps us to understand even more what Paul says in verse 13, that Moses, quote, put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Listen to that. He put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, the ESV translates the word outcome as outcome. It's the Greek word telos, and I would translate it as the end or the goal. 
Paul also speaks of the end, the end of what was being brought to an end. What's he talking about there? I think he's referring to the law. On the one hand, it's a reference to the glory of the law. This is where we start to see Paul being more of a madman. For example, in verse 7, he says, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, that phrase there is referencing the glory of Moses' face. Okay? However... I think Paul takes that fading glory and interprets it in a mysterious way as the fading uh, temporary nature of the old covenant itself. For example, he says in verse 11, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory. Notice in that place, what is brought to an end is not the same thing as glory, but it comes with glory. Well, what is he talking about in the context? The law. The law came with glory. I think what he's saying is, just as Moses' glory faded, that is meant to be a picture mysteriously of the fading nature of the law itself. Now, here's the part that will blow your mind. Back in verse 13, Paul says that Moses put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome or the end of what was being brought to an end. I think he means Moses put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not see Christ, who is the end of the law, which is being brought to an end. Okay? I think he's getting at the fact that although the law is not the gospel, yet Christ is hidden and veiled in the law, in types and shadows. But apart from a heart change, apart from faith and Christ taking away the veil, you can't see them there. You're only stuck with the law and Moses and types and shadows. Listen to what Richard Sibbs says. He wrote an excellent book, The Excellency of the Gospel Above the Law. There was a veil upon their hearts which is evident by experience in the Jews to this day, who so cleave in their affection to Moses and to the shadows and ceremonies of his ministry that they reject the scope and end of it, which is Jesus Christ crucified, and they can do no other. For although the veil that was upon Moses' face be removed as it is by the doctrine of the gospel... Yet until the gospel in the spirit and power of it come home to their hearts and taketh off the veil, that is, until it removes their natural blindness and obstinacy, the Jews will avoid, uh, unavoidably abide in their ignorance in bondage. This is why Jews can read this book, the Old Testament part of it, and not see Christ. Why? A veil lies in their heart. Do they see God? Yeah, but through the law, they don't have hope. They either have a vain hope, trusting themselves that somehow they'll be justified by the works of the law, or they have despair. Those are the only two options for a sinner who comes to God via the law. But is Christ not in the Old Testament? Oh man, He's the end of it. He's the whole point. He's everywhere. 
but you can't see him unless the veil be taken away and you have eyes of faith. Then you see the glory of Jesus Christ. And so sadly, for those who don't have faith, they have no true hope in God. This is why Paul says that Judaizers, what did they put their confidence in? Paul says, I will boast in nothing but the cross. What did Judaizers put their confidence in? In the flesh. He says in Philippians 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. I could... I could go over all the litany of why I'm a great candidate to be justified by works of the law, but now, he says, I will put no confidence in that but in Christ alone, because only Christ can give a sure hope. That, brothers and sisters, is why Paul was bold. Now, with the time we have left, I want to give you a few thoughts and encouragements. First, I can't help as a good Reformed Baptist but getting a few digs in at our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in point of covenant theology. Just note, I do think this is significant. Our brothers and sisters uh, who hold that the covenant of grace is basically all the post-fall covenants, maybe except for the Noahic covenant, they also hold that the Mosaic covenant um, is, is the covenant of grace. I've even heard them point to God's merciful forgiving of Israel after the golden calf incident. And God is indeed merciful, and He does forgive them there. But note that Paul draws the opposite conclusion from Exodus 34 than they do. They look at God's self-revelation as a God of mercy and all those things, which is true, and they conclude that this covenant is therefore the covenant of grace, whereas Paul says, Yeah, that's all true of God, but this covenant does not give hope to sinners. Just a point there. The next thing I I want to really encourage you with, brothers and sisters, you need to know, you need to know this. God wants you to have boldness and confidence in His love. Boldness and confidence, not really sure that you love him, but you're not totally sure. Boldness. What a term Paul uses. I say this because I I see many today, I see it online, and I just don't jump into it because I used to do that, and it's, I just don't do that, right? But there are so many today who claim to have a reformed doctrine, to be reformed, and they are Arminians in point of assurance. There are those out there who think it's pretty good to be confident, pretty good to be bold, if you're living the right life, right? The problem with that is you make your primary ground of assurance your own good works. Our hope is built not on the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh, but in Jesus Christ and His work alone, It's fascinating to read the Puritans and the older Reformed writers on just how how robust a doctrine of assurance they have. Read William Perkins. He'll tell you, God wants you to know that you're one of the elect and to not doubt it. What? That freaks some people out. 
They think if you have that much confidence and boldness in God's love for you, well, that's going to lead to licentiousness. They think it's good to have... I've met several people like this over the years, and, and I respect them. They're godly brothers. But the way we'll, we'll kind of go at each other with swords and daggers. And where they end is they say, I think there's a place for fear, though. What that amounts to is saying, I think there's a place for doubting in the promises of the gospel. There are two kinds of fear we ought to have. Or, well, there's two kinds of fear you can have. You ought not to have them both. One is childlike fear. That's the fear we are to have. The other is slavish fear. William Perkins says that's a vice. That's the fear of punishment. And yet so many will tell you there's a place for slavish fear in the Christian life. No. It doesn't mean we don't read the warnings. We do. We take them seriously because they're from our Father whom we have awe and respect for. But we also don't have slavish fear. So many today who are Reformed promote a very, like, 99% childlike fear 1% slavish fear. That's not the gospel, and it's not reformed, and it's not in the best writers. Be confident and bold. Don't let anyone take that away from you. The second thing I want to encourage you with, something which I didn't really touch on today, is not only does Paul have hope in what Christ has done for him, but in what awaits him. This is really why he can move past all the agony It's because of the hope that is before him. Hope is very much forward-looking. In fact, glorification is often simply synonymous many times with hope. It is the hope of glory. Paul says some amazing things about the glory of the new covenant. He says that that which came with glory, the old covenant, now has no glory with the glory that is coming. Think of that, brothers and sisters. Think of the shining face of Moses, blindingly radiant, and that is nothing compared to what God will do when He transforms us in glory. I I think we don't know how much we don't know about what awaits us. Does that make sense? I think we don't know how great it's going to be when we get there. So Paul can point to that and say, therefore, we do not lose hope. We keep going. We do not lose heart because that is the hope before us, brothers and sisters. And I can tell you, we don't know how great it's going to be, but it's going to blow your mind when you get there. Be encouraged by that. Be encouraged by that when you experience the agonies and toils and mundaneness and, and pain and grieving, and mourning, and losses of this life, that what awaits you is beyond all comparison. Think of all the things Paul says. I like how he says, danger with these guys, danger's over here. He must have a danger list somewhere where he's writing all these things down, and yet that's nothing because of what awaits Paul. Oh, brothers and sisters, as Peter says, put your hope entirely on the glory that is to be revealed. Meditate on it. Look into it. Contemplate these things, and you will receive strength. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Thank you for Paul, Lord. 
We thank you for all of the writings we have from him, which we know, we know are from you first and foremost, and yet he is a gift to the church's Lord. We thank you for all that you put him through, how it preaches to our own souls. We thank you for the mysteries that he reveals through your spirit in the scriptures. Oh God, would you remind us today that we have boldness and access towards you because we come through Jesus Christ. We have not approached Mount Zion or Mount Sinai. We do not come to the ministry of death and condemnation, but the ministry of righteousness and life. Father, I pray for those here today whose hearts are still blind. Oh, Father, there are many children in this congregation who right now have a veil over their heart. And yet, Father, Paul says that the veil is taken away by the Spirit. Oh, God, would you do a work and take away that veil that they can behold you in the face of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name.